So what I love about that song that we just sang, we just sung, is I feel like it captures some of the, the story of, of the gospel in it. The, the, the totality of, of the story of God's word. And if you know me, you know that I love a good story. And what I love about the story of God's redemption is one, it's true. And two, it has the best good ending that you could ever imagine. I mean, look at Revelation 21 and 22 and just not rejoice. I don't think it can be done. Because we know the end of the story and we know how good it ends. And I love stories. And I think all stories in some way that are good and worth telling or some way, form, or fashion patterned after the story of God's redemption. I think what we love about stories is, is how they are, serve as windows into this grand story that God is telling. So I love movies. I love TV shows. I love books. I, I don't care what form the story comes to me in. I love the power of story. And typically, as a rule of thumb... I like stories with good endings. That's just, that's just who I am. It's, it's why I like Star Wars and New Hope better than Star Wars Empire Strikes Back. That's just, it's just who I am. And it's also why when I was in high school, I didn't like the play Death of a Salesman that much. I don't know how many of you have read Death of a Salesman, but it ain't exactly you've got mail. Um, it... It's a good play. It has, the, the quality of the play is not diminished. It's, uh, Arthur Miller produced something that was successful in his day and has been successful throughout uh, the generations so, uh, after him. Uh, and it just lacked a happy ending that I, that I enjoy when I'm reading or watching a story. And if you're unfamiliar with the play Death of a Salesman, let me just fill you in. It's kind of a modern day, uh, every man's tragedy, so to speak, uh, that focuses in on this washed up salesman named Willie Loman. Willie spent his life chasing after this post-war consumeristic American dream uh, to find success and happiness and significance. But ultimately and tragically, he really, he never finds it. He, he, he never finds um, what he's looking for. And the play kind of ends uh, with him kind of as a failure. Because by the end, Willie comes to this despairing, and suicidal conclusion that his life is worth more to his family dead than alive. And he follows through on that. Now, I think the reason why tragedies do so well is, is the same we, reason that horror movies do well, is they capitalize on fear. Whereas horror movies capitalize on a more primal fear, of, a fear of, 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 um, of, of the dark or the fear of, of losing one's life. Tragedies focus on a, a kind of a deeper level of a fear, an emotional fear, I think. So like when you, when you watch Romeo and Juliet, the fear that is provoked in you is this fear of unfulfilled love. Or when you read Death of a Salesman or watch it on stage, the, the fear is, is that you, like Willie, would spend your life pursuing after the wind in a storm of insignificance. And at the end of the day, what you devoted your life to would be meaningless. That's the fear that I think death of a salesman taps into. And I think Arthur Miller in doing that identifies what I believe to be an innate God-given desire that is in us. And that is the desire to do something truly significant and truly meaningful with our lives. I mean, we all want to do something that is memorable to those around us, that, that leaves a mark in a positive way. We want to make an impact to those around us. 
And that, the tragic flaw that Willie has is that at the end of the day, his life was directed towards something, particularly the pursuit of monetary wealth at the expense of all other things, that resulted in him viewing himself as totally insignificant. So when things begin to implode for him, when he loses his job, he gives up and he takes his own life. But the good news for us is that the Bible tells us that we can participate in something truly significant. It's not based on the terms of success that the world describes, but it's based on what the Lord prescribes. And not only can we do something significant, but God has saved us from our sins and equipped us to do just that. Because the eternal Son of God, He took on flesh for our sins and our salvation. And he, and he lived for our righteousness and he died and he was buried and he rose that he might save us and give us peace with God. But he also did that so that he might employ us into his mission at bringing about the restoration of creation and making disciples of all nations. Now, because of what Christ has done for us, we can participate in something that is truly significant, eternally so, so that our impact doesn't just last for a generation or two, but for all eternity and knowing this helps us persevere in doing good doing the good work that the lord has called us to when things get hard now if you've been following along with our series in first timothy you know that timothy was in a tough and difficult spot for ministry last week randy shared with us that timothy was surrounded by opponents who did not like him did not trust him did not respect him and opponents who are, frankly, of the devil, who were sent there to deceive and lead astray the, the sheep and particularly bring harm to Timothy's life. And he was in a place that he would, not have, he would rather have not been. He would rather have been somewhere else. But Paul had left him in Ephesus. It was the will of the Lord that he would be in Ephesus, not somewhere else. And his personality wasn't as given to the ministry task at hand as he would have liked it to be. But in light of all this, this week, we're going to see in, in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 13 through 16, how Paul urges him to continue in the ministry at where he's at, and he's reminding him, he's going to remind him in this passage of the significance of what he is doing and why he is staying. And I think what the Spirit is trying to do in this passage for both Timothy and for us is teach us this, is that God equips you with his word, his power, and his people so that you might do something eternally significant. Look with me at 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 13. 1 Timothy is kind of in the back of your Bible towards the end of the New Testament. And it's after the, there's a lot of T's right in there. So 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 13. And it's going to be on the screen as well. He says, Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift that you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Now I want to pause just real quick and I want to speak to a very small number of the people in this room. There are some of you in this room who feel like the Lord might be calling you to vocational full-time ministry. And I think this passage speaks to your situation. I just want to take a moment and talk to you about this. When I was wrestling through that call in my life, I was a senior in high school and it was in college, and I was wrestling through, uh, am I called to ministry? And I think this passage uh, gives wisdom as to answering that question in the yes or the no. So those who are called to ministry, there's two things that you should be looking for. 
One, there's this inward, inward desire that you have, this, this, this gifting, this longing that you have to do ministry that is from the Lord. That's what we see. Paul, Timothy had this gift uh, that was connected to his ministry that was his. It was inwardly, it was his. He, uh, it was his gift from the Lord. And it was given to him by God, which was announced to him through prophecy, which prophecy is just announcing the word of the Lord. So the source of the gift and the calling that was Timothy was inward, but it was from the Lord. So you may not have a, someone who's a prophet come and telling you, hey, this is your gift, this is your ministry, but you do sense this inward desire and this calling to go serve the Lord in, in full-time ministry. And this is in the local church or in, in any kind of mission capacity. And then secondly, there is a recognition of the giftings and the calling from the local church. Timothy wasn't just internalizing his call, but it was being affirmed by the elders that were around him, the leadership in the local church. They were laying their hands on him, recognizing that, yes, indeed, the Lord had gifted him, and they were ordaining him to that ministry. That had happened in the past. So Paul is reminding him of this uh, as part of what he's trying to encourage him, but it speaks to those who might be called to full-time ministry. So if you feel like you've been called to church ministry or to the mission field or to some form of mission-minded uh, mission uh, vocation, do not neglect the gift and calling that God has placed on your life. If you have a desire to serve in the church or in the mission field and you feel like God has called you to that and that is being affirmed by others in the church, press towards that. That is, that, that is a good thing. It's, it's, a, it's a noble thing to live out your faith in that way. So if that's you and, and you're one of the small number who might be in that position, prayerfully and with the help and guidance of the leadership in the local church, take, these step, take those steps towards full-time ministry. So back to the passage. Paul said, he said, Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift that you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things, immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. He says, persist in this, for by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Let's pray. Father, Lord, we ask that you would bless the reading and, and teaching of your word. I pray that you would help us all to understand it and to apply it to our lives by your spirit. And in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. So this last clause, for by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers, is where Paul is grounding the significance of the ministry that Paul is calling him to. Now, when he says you will save yourself and your hearers, it's important to think about salvation in the right way. Because salvation understood broadly is not just a past event, but it's a present reality and a future reality as well. We were saved when we placed our faith in Jesus Christ. We repented of our sins and believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. We are being saved by the Spirit's work of sanctification in our lives right now as we are being uh, conformed to the image of Christ from one degree of glory to another. And we will be saved in the future when we are revealed as, as the sons of God in the resurrection. We, are, we have been saved from the penalty of sin. We are being saved from the power of sin in our life. And we will one day be saved from the presence of sin entirely. Salvation is a past, present, and future reality for the believer. And I think this broader sense of salvation is what Paul has in this mind because we know we are justified by grace through faith, not through works, through ministry. So he's, he's speaking towards this broader, uh, more sanctifying view of salvation. And he's communicating in doing this a profound truth about ministry in and through the local church. And that is, this is a long sentence, so just work, work with me. There's two, two ways that he's communicating this. 
First, he's communicating to Timothy that God has ordained ministry in and through the local church to be the chief means through which we work out our salvation with fear and trembling as we walk in the good works that God has prepared for us. That's what he's meaning when he says you will save yourself. Ministry for Timothy, ministry for us, is a way for us to respond to the Lord in faith and to work out our salvation in service to one another as the Lord works his sanctifying grace in our lives. It's how we walk in the good works that God has prepared for us beforehand. And he's speaking to the the church as well. And then he says that God has ordained ministry in and through the local church to be the chief means through which God rescues the lost and keeps them in the faith. This is what he means when he says, you will save your hearers. Now, before you think that I'm only talking about the ministry that occurs on a few hours on Sunday morning and on Wednesday, hear me say this. The church is not a building but it's a people who chooses to gather together on the basis of their common faith. This is not Meadowbrook. You are Meadowbrook. And we gather together in this building, which we have named, or people 60 years ago have named Meadowbrook. We are the church, and we have been saved by Jesus Christ, and we have covenanted together to be a body of Christ on the basis of our common faith, in order to carry out the mission of Christ, to make disciples and bring about kingdom restoration and encourage one another in holiness and in hope until he returns. This is what the local church is meant to be. We're to be the body of Christ. This American idea, this Attawal County idea, that the local church is one extracurricular activity among a litany of other extracurricular activities is not in the New Testament. The idea of a Christianity divorced from the active engagement in the life and ministry of the church is foreign to the Bible. You will not find it on the New Testament. You might find it in the conversations that Vivian Lee Maddox but you will not find it in the New Testament. This idea that the church is just an extra activity that we fit into our schedules does not make sense when we read the New Testament. That said, our ministry does not just happen in this gathered congregation. We know that. The ministry that we do as a church does not just happen here on Sunday mornings or on Wednesday nights. But our ministry must never be disconnected from the gathered body of Christ. Our ministry out there must also seek to bring people into the fellowship that uniquely occurs in here. When we gather as the body of Christ, when we worship the Lord together, when we take a communion, when we observe baptism, when we pray with one another, when we bear one another's burdens, when we preach the word, when we devote ourselves to the public reading and teaching and exhortation of the scriptures, when we operate as a fellowship, this ministry, both in here and out there, is eternally significant. And it makes a difference for both yourself and others. Now, thankfully, this ministry that is so important, the Lord has not left us aimless in how to figure it out. He gives instruction, particularly in this passage, along many others. In fact, in this passage, there are six commands uh, regarding how this ministry is supposed to look. Now, since we both as a church family and as individuals want to do this ministry that is eternally significant, both in our lives and in the lives of others, let's ask ourselves this simple question. 
How should this passage shape our ministry? How should it shape your ministry? Now, the context of this passage, I just want to be frank, is primarily directed towards the leadership of the local church. People like Randy, myself, the staff, the ministry team, the life group leaders, uh, the, the, the lay shepherds, those who are leading out in the church. This is primarily directed towards them because it's a pastoral letter. However, its implication is broader and extending to Christian ministry in general. At Meadowbrook, when we have our membership luncheon, one of the things that we say to our people who are joining our church is this, is that the pastors are equippers, the people are the ministers. The people being the pastors and the lay people. The staff doesn't do the ministry. The life group leaders don't do the ministry. We all do the ministry. Every single one of us has been commissioned by Christ to make disciples of all nations. You cannot outsource disciple making. You cannot outsource uh, uh, evangelism. You cannot outsource comfort. You cannot outsource bearing one another's burdens. We all do the ministry of the church. You cannot outsource ministry. We all participate in it. You don't pay and give your offerings so that some people can get do ministry for you. You offer your gifts to the Lord as a, as a, a way of generosity to extend the ministry forward so that you can participate in yourselves. So that said, this ministry happens in your homes. It happens at your workplace. It happens in your community, at the ball fields, the school, the gas station that you go to regularly. It happens at Open Hands. It happens at Way of the Cross. It happens in Uganda. It happens in Cuba. It happens wherever in the world that you are serving and doing the Lord's work. That is where the ministry of Meadowbrook is taking place, through you. And today I want to focus in on this broader understanding as we look at this passage and we look at each of the imperatives in turn and we settle it down into pretty much four principles for ministry. And I want you to know as well, as we focus on that, this, these four points should be what you expect and you demand of the ministry leadership at Meadowbrook, both lay and paid. So that in mind, let's return to our question and ask, how should this passage shape our ministry? First, Paul says this. He says, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and to teaching. Now, that phrase of Scripture is actually not in the Greek New Testament. It's implied. And it's, it's implied really for all three of those things. So you could easily translate this as devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to the exhortation of Scripture, and to the teaching of Scripture, which implies a very important point about Christian ministry. And that is that Christian ministry is Bible ministry. And we need to let our ministry be shaped by the Bible. How so? Well, one, we share scriptures with others. We, we read scriptures. We just, we, we're devoted to just telling people what the scriptures say, to reading what the text says and sharing that with others. And then we want to exhort them in the faith. Now, exhortation and exhorting is not a word that we use in our English. The Greek word for that is parakaleo. And what it means is it means to come alongside one another come alongside someone and help them in living out their faith. In, in fact, it's used of the Holy Spirit when it, when it call, refers to him as our helper. He is our parakaleo. He is the one who comes alongside us and helps us and encourages us in what we are to do. It requires relationship. It requires patience. And it requires faithfulness. You're coming alongside someone to help them live out the scriptures. And then third, you want to teach others the meaning and significance of the teachers. You want to teach people what the scriptures mean, how it applies to their life, what the significance of it, how it points to Jesus Christ in the gospel, and how the gospel changes everything about the way that we live. 
So as a pastor, what I want to do each and every week is I want to read the scriptures to you because I want you to know this is what the Bible says. I'm much more concerned with what the Bible says than what I say. So I want to point you to the scriptures and I want to come alongside you and, and help you apply them, be patient with you, bear burdens with you, and, and be gracious and merciful to one another. And as we exhort one another in the faith and we encourage one another in this kind of arm in arm Christianity. And then I want to teach you what the scriptures mean and the significance of it for your lives. If you're a mom or you're a dad and you want your kids to be disciples of Jesus Christ or you're a granddad or grandmother, read the scriptures with your kids or grandkids. Come alongside them with mercy, grace, and patience and help them live out the scriptures and teach them what the scriptures mean. If you're part of the older generation and you want to make an impact on the future generation, don't bemoan, don't mock on Facebook, but teach, share the scriptures with the younger generation. Come alongside them in the faith and teach them what the scriptures mean. If you want to make a difference in, the, in that person at your workplace or in that person at your team or, or that person at school, what you want to do is you want to share the truth of God's word with them, share the gospel with them, come alongside them with patience and as they seek to live out the scriptures. And that might be repenting and believing in the gospel. And you're exhorting them, encouraging them to, cut, to do that and then teach them what the meaning of the scripture says and the significance of what it says. And the reason why we do this, the reason why we shape our ministry by the Bible is because we humbly confess that our words, our experience are really not worth much. I don't wanna get up here and share my wisdom from my experience because that's, it may not be true for you. But if I get up here and I share with you the eternal word of God, I know that that is applicable for, for you. Because the word of God is living and active. It does not return void. My two-bit pieces of advice on parenting about what worked for us is not living and active. My opinion is not what you need. You need the word of God. So I want my ministry and I want your ministry to be shaped by the Bible. And then as we do this, Paul then tells Timothy this as well. As he says, do not neglect the gift you have which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. And that word practice is interesting too. The King, the King James Version translate it meditate. Uh, ESV does practice. And really it has this kind of contemplative act, idea to it that is both active and uh, reflective. Uh, a good word that you could also use for there would be cultivate. Uh, kind of like that garden Im imagery. It's, it's uh, hands in the dirt, uh, reflective, contemplative, but active practicing. He says, practice these things, immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. So the second thing that he's, that he's charged us to is this. He says, cultivate your gifts by regularly using them for the common good. We see a little bit of teaching about spiritual gifts in this passage. There's some key passages if you want to study uh, spiritual gifts. Romans 12 uh, and 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. Those three chapters together in Romans 12 are, are really um, um, really insightful for this idea of spiritual gifts. First Peter 4 as well, Ephesians 4, if you want to look at a different avenue of it as well. So what we see in this passage is that spiritual gifts are possessed by and unique to you. It's the gift that Timothy has. Uh, it's given to you by God. The source of your gift is from the Lord, not from man. Uh, and it is affirmed by the church, by others, and it is for the common good. Primarily the upbuilding of the body of Christ and the expansion of his kingdom. That's what we see here when he says, practice these things, immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. This isn't just so Timothy can be um, vindicated in the eyes of others. They're seeing his progress because they're experiencing the benefit of his growth in the use of his spiritual gifts. 
as we grow in our spiritual gifts and the use of our spiritual gifts, others see our progress, not so that they can applaud us, but so that they, they see it and, and that they are experiencing the, the benefits and the fruitfulness of our ministry. So spiritual gifts or God's gracious empowerments, God's power in our lives are how we can all have the same message and overall principles for ministry, yet be so unique in our expression of ministry. I feel like the Lord has gifted me in teaching and the Lord has gifted many of you in teaching, but I bet we don't teach the same way. Our ministry of teaching does not look the same. Randy and I share the gifts of teaching, but the way that we teach are, are, are different. We have unique expressions of the giftings that we have because it's unique to us. And the spirit, if he indwells you, he is manifesting himself in you in a unique way through spiritual gifts. And we are not to neglect those, but to cultivate them. But the sad reality is, is that many, many are neglecting to use their gifts. Rather than practicing their gifts, they're not using them. And, it's, and they are neglecting the ministry that has been given to them by God. Now, if you look on the screen, you can see a picture of our garden in 2020. That's that what's on the left, is our garden in 2020. Taylor and I thought, hey, we're going to make a garden at the beginning of this pandemic. And, you know, we can produce food for ourselves. It would be good. I mean, we only planted tomatoes and jalapenos and summer squash. So, like, we are going to live off summer squash and salsa, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> but that was our garden at the beginning of 2020. It's not the best garden. It, it, there's, been better, there's been better gardens made. But you can see we've given some attention to it. There's no weeds. There's structure. There's ropes tied around. I say we. Taylor did it all. I just ate it. Um, and... Um, and you can see that there's fruitfulness happening. You see two red tomatoes, and if you can see on the screen, there's a lot more green tomatoes that are about to, to um, be ready to eat. Now, the one on the right is a picture of our garden uh, today, or, or not today, uh, a few weeks ago before we weeded it down. And um, <laughs> again, not me, it was Josh Player, so I, I, didn't, I didn't do it. <laughs> uh, it's, um, and you can see there's a little tomato plant. We didn't plant it. It just kind of came up on its own. And there's one little measly tomato that Mason picked off for it even got ripe. Um, <laughs> this is a garden that was cultivated. This was a garden that was neglected. Some of your spiritual gifts in your ministry looks like the 2021 garden. Through lack of use lack of cultivation, lack of support, lack of finding avenues to use your giftings for the good of the church and the good of the kingdom. You've let weeds grow and the fruitfulness is it's there but not like it could be. Some of you are teachers who aren't teaching. Givers who aren't giving. Exhorters who aren't exhorting. Leaders who aren't leading administrators who aren't organizing, comforters who are not comforting, homeowners who are not showing hospitality. And your ministry looks like the 2021 garden. But it doesn't have to be that way. Do not neglect the gift that God has given you. You have a ministry that only you can carry out. You can have an impact that only you can have because God has gifted you uniquely and we need your ministry. So when you neglect your gift and your ministry, we all suffer. 
Cultivate and use your gift. And as you do that, remember, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. We have been hammering the importance of good doctrine. Bad doctrine kills people for eternity. It is important. If there's anyone preaching a false gospel, let them be accursed. Don't listen to bad teaching. It will lead you astray. If not in a first order issue, it will cause harm in your life that was unnecessary. But also remember this. Ministry is not a head game. Pay attention to both your character and your doctrine. Paul charged Timothy to keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. There's a trend that's happening in primarily conservative circles, probably other circles as well, but I see it in conservative. It's a little bit concerning to me. That goes like this, that someone who thinks that they're right about a particular issue or a particular doctrine, in fact, they probably are right, gives them the right to be a massive jerk others hear me say this the scriptures directly forbids that practice we are called to keep a close watch on our character and our doctrine our teaching if in keeping a close watch on your teaching and your doctrine you're not expressing the fruit of the spirit love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness gentleness, faithfulness and self-control then you are doing your ministry wrong. If you're mocking people on social media, sharing memes that put down other people, mocking people in, in, in life out of a heart that's bitter and angry as if your faith and, and knowledge was, was not from the Lord anyway, you're missing the point of the ministry that we're called to do. Look at 1 Corinthians 13, 2. Paul says, If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge and have all faith so as to remove mountains. In other words, if I am right about everything but have not love, I am nothing. If you are right but you do not show love in your ministry, you are nothing according to 1 Corinthians 13, 2. We are called to be ministers of love and truth. You derail one or the other. It doesn't matter. The enemy will get you on either side. You lose the sight of Christian ministry. We are to be ministers who are both loving in our character, gentle in the way that we lead people, and faithful, true in our doctrine. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. And then persist in this ministry. Be in ministry for the long game. There's two groups I want to talk to particularly about this. First, I want to talk to those who are weary. You've been ministering and you're not seeing fruit. Timothy was not seeing the fruit he would have liked either. But Paul called him to perseverance. There is no promise of immediate results in Christian ministry. In fact, you may not even see the results of your ministry. Persevere nonetheless. But in, in fact, it might just take time. There's an ancient theologian named Augustine of Hippo. 
And he came to faith and was one of the most influential theologians who's ever lived. And his mother, Monica, prayed for him for 17 years. As Augustine was living in sin, following false teaching, doing whatever he wanted to, being a horrible son to his mother, Monica never stopped praying for him. Never, start, never stopped pointing him to the truth. And after 17 years of faithful ministry, she saw the fruit of her labor. Augustine was saved. And if you're in one of those seasons where you're just tired and you don't feel like God is doing anything, keep at the ministry that you're doing. You do not know what the Lord is accomplishing behind the scenes. And then I want to speak to another audience, to those who are aging um, in, this, in this congregation. I don't mean that in any kind of offensive way. But those who are just growing older. I want to share with you a passage from a book I've read on aging, uh, particularly by J.R. Packer, who died just, I think, a couple years ago at the age of like 99. He wrote this in like 2016, so in his 90s. He says this. He says, Aging is not for wimps. So far as bodily health allows, we should aim to be found running the last lap of the race of our Christian life, as we would say, flat out. Retirees are admonished in our day, both explicitly and implicitly, in terms that boil down to this. Relax. Slow down. Take it easy. Amuse yourself. Do only what you enjoy. J.I. Packer says, I see this agenda, well meant as it is, as wrong-headed in the extreme. I think it is one of the huge follies of our time, about which some frank speaking is in order and indeed overdue. For the moment, I leave aside its lack of Christian content and focus on the fact that it prescribes idleness, self-indulgence, and irresponsibility as the goal of one's declining years. This, over time, will generate a burdensome sense that one's life is no longer significant but has become, quite simply, useless. The challenge that faces us is not to let physical slowing down produce spiritual slowing down, but to cultivate the maximum zeal for the closing phase of our earthly life. Take it from me, a guy in his 20s. The church needs its elder population. Persist in your ministry. Don't pull back. Don't hit the brakes. We need your wisdom. We need your zeal in prayer. We need your zeal in evangelism. We need your zeal for service. And I am grateful. I am so grateful for the ministry of the older population at our church. I am encouraged by you. I am challenged by you and I am inspired by you to greater degrees of faithfulness and love and prayer and evangelism and in ministry. Keep at what you are doing. But if you are one who has pressed the brakes, who think, oh, I don't, I, it's time for me to slow down, please don't. Press forward, persist in your ministry until you are physically unable to do so. We desperately need it as a church family we are so grateful for you and we long for your impact so just thank, thank you and then we get back to the significance persist in this for by doing so you will save both yourself and your hearers we've already discussed the significance of this type of ministry but it's worth repeating God has equipped you with his word with his power and with his body of Christ who affirms you in your giftings so that you might do something eternally significant. 
If you've come to saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God made flesh, who lived for your righteousness, died for your sins, and rose again, that you might have eternal life in him. Jesus has not only welcomed you into his kingdom, into his family, but he has employed you in the ministry, in the service of his mission. Follow his instruction. Do not neglect the ministry that you've been called to. And you will find yourself working towards something that is truly significant for yourself and for others for all eternity. You won't have to fear wasting your life as Willie Loman did. But you will be carrying out the will of the king of the universe. And the impact of that ministry will be felt throughout all eternity. The question is, will you answer that call? Let's pray. Father, I pray that we would be found faithful. I pray that you would light a fire in our spirit. That we may join you in the work that you are already doing. Lord, we confess that we are utterly powerless to do anything of significance if it were not for you if it were not your spirit living in us, gifting us with your power, giving us your words through which we can minister, Lord, I just pray that we would be found faithful. Focusing on faithfulness, not the results. Those are your, that's your responsibility. I'm just pleading, Lord, that you would convict us of our idleness. Convict me of my idleness. And help me to press forward along with my faith family at Meadowbrook and the ministry that you have called us to, each of us. And may we be found faithful. In Jesus' name we pray.